are techniques for building motivation uh, for reward-based training. So a lot of our training is um, predicated on having what we call a good reward event, a good interactive reward event. And we spend a significant part of our foundation training building uh, desire for a certain type of reward. Um, traditionally, we looked at rewards as things that we gave our dog. You're training with food, you're training with a ball, you're training with a tug toy. And it was the item that was more important than uh, the event that was created with the item. As our training sort of evolved and progressed, we look at the reward more as uh, something that happens. And we're less concerned, something that happens actually between the dog and the handler as an interactive event that varies in duration and intensity. Um, and we care less about the item we're using and more about how we use that item. So I could use food very much the same way I used a toy. I would use a tug. Or I could use a tug toy, or I could use a ball, or I could use a plastic bottle, or I could run and push my dog and roughhouse with them. There's a variety of different ways that I can create uh, a satisfying interaction between the dog and handler. Once we have this reward event constructed, we use it uh, as reinforcement for behavior as we go forward. And almost all of our training is geared towards teaching the dog new obedience behaviors in a reward-based system, meaning they're learning to work to get something they want by doing specific behaviors. And this reward event, the more valuable and the more intense and the more motivated my dog is for this reward event, the better my training is going to go. The better my attention is going to be, the better my engagement, the faster the dog's going to learn, the harder they're going to work to get to it, and the more distractions they're going to ignore in order to get to that reward event. So today we're going to talk about what we call, this is basically motivation. How do we build it? What are the basic principles in building it? So, and we're going to break it down into sections. We're going to talk about how we move without the dog. So there's a lot of physicality to um, interacting well with your dog in dog training. We can intellectualize it as much as we want, but if you're going to do it well, it's a physical endeavor. You're going to have to move your body. You're going to have to run. You're going to have to bend. You're going to have to twist. And you're going to have to be aware of how you're moving your body and be in control of your body. So we break out some of the core skills and the core movements that you use in interacting with your dog, and we do them without the dog. So we're going to go through some of those steps and talk about how we do that. We're going to talk a lot about the reward as an interactive event. So how do we build that interactive event? How are we present in it? And how do we get the dog to want to do that activity with us? I can have a dog that's motivated strictly for food, and I can be kind of a human food dispenser, and I can make progress training that dog. But I get much better results from a dog that wants to do that activity, whether it's take a piece of food, chase a ball, play tug, with me specifically in an interactive way. And you're going to see we'll talk a lot about how we do that. Um, we're going to talk about uh, some of the techniques that we've borrowed from different disciplines and things to increase uh, motivation. We're going to talk about frustration, restraint, uh, a variety of different movement techniques that we use to increase motivation. We're going to talk about um, techniques that we've borrowed from protection sports. So one of the things that I found over the years is 
when I got involved in doing protection sports is that um, there are techniques to develop the dog in protection sports that are useful for many other disciplines. Uh, what we do online through frustration and restraint also has use in developing your dog's desire to play, tug, chase, recalls, a variety of different things. So we're going to talk about what techniques we've borrowed from protection sports and what kind of bite work we're not really doing protection work with a lot of the dogs, but what kind of bite work is beneficial for my overall reward event that I'm constructing. And then we're gonna talk about genetic propensities in dogs as well. So certain dogs genetically are going to want to play and interact in a certain way. And it's important that we don't try to fit a square peg in a round hole, that we go with the dog's strengths. Some dogs are more naturally possessive. Some dogs are uh, more interested in movement uh, some dogs are more interested in kind of fighting and roughhousing and using their mouths more uh, aggressively. And if I'm trying to take a dog that's more interested in movement and turn that dog into a kind of tugger and I want to roughhouse with that dog, that dog might not find that satisfying. And in my attempts to make the dog play the way I want to play, I make the dog not like the activity. So I want to steer the dog in certain directions, but I also have to kind of go with what the dog gives me genetically. And there are certain types of uh, propensities that a dog will have naturally, and we can shape them only so much. Um, also, different dogs manifest energy differently. So our training plans and how we interact with them has to be a function of that as well. You'll hear us talk a lot about what we call internal versus external dogs. Uh, and part of that is just how that given dog manifests energy. An internal dog can be very focused, but doesn't move around very much. They tend to sit still well and hold themselves well. And an external dog moves a lot. Everything that they're feeling inside you see coming out through their body. Their tails wag, they bounce, they vibrate, they have a hard time sitting still. So we have to have a different training plan for each of those dogs based on their temperament type. I need to focus more on one aspect of the training with an internal dog and more on another with an external dog. This is a kind of an example of a genetic trait that steers what we do when we're rewarding and working with the dog. If you've seen any of our other videos or watched any of our training, uh, you hear us talk a lot about the concept of engagement. And um, I think it bears repeating again that engagement simply means that the dog will pay sustained attention to you and wants what you have to offer in terms of a reward event. Whether it's food, toys, play, some kind of interaction, the dog wants something from you and will hold their attention on you in an attempt to get it from you. This is the cornerstone of our entire training system. If your dog is not paying attention to you, then we have no business trying to teach the dog's behaviors. And so we spend a significant part of our early training developing engagement. It kind of goes hand in hand with developing value in the reward event. These two things happen together. So I bring my dog out, I start charging my markers, I start teaching my dog to, to follow food, I start teaching my dog to chase food, I start playing with toys, I start doing restrained recalls, all the things that we've talked about. Uh, and in the course of building the desire for these activities and these in interactions with me, the dog naturally pays attention to me. And what we want to develop is a dog that pays continuous attention, and wants something from us. It's a very easy dog to train. So you'll hear us harp on this over and over again uh, in all of our training videos and in all of, because it is such an important piece of the puzzle. And extra energy devoted to developing uh, engagement in your dog and to building power and uh, 
passion for the reward event will carry you a long way in your training life. So you are better focusing your attentions in the early part of your training on developing these things, the reward system, our communication system, and engagement, than you are worrying about what behaviors your dog does. It doesn't matter if your dog sits or downs or retrieves or any of those things. If you devote the energy necessary to these other aspects of your training, engagement, communication, and building solid reward events, interactive reward events, then all the rest of the stuff will come into place easily. In this section, we're gonna talk about uh, the reward as an interactive event, and some of the principles that surround that. So uh, for those of you that have uh, been uh, around much of our training, you realize how much we talk about the interactive nature of a reward. Uh, tug of war uh, is a game that we play with our dogs on a regular basis uh, because it's highly motivating for certain dogs, not all dogs, but also because it's directly interactive between the dog and the handler. Uh, the dog can't do that by themselves. And so we want to take that interactive nature and apply it to all of our reward systems, whether I'm using food, uh, a ball, or a tug, or just playing with my dog physically, having my dog chase me around and pushing my dog off of me and playing games with my dog. I want it to be something that the dog and I do together. So we're gonna talk a lot about the interactive nature of that. And some of the concepts that we're gonna cover in this section are, one, movement is reinforcing. This is huge. Sitting still and handing your dog's rewards is not very motivating movement, well, the movement of the reward and movement of the handler, both of those things. So we're going to focus a lot on how we move ourselves to make that more interesting and exciting for the dog. We're going to talk about the contrast between the reward event and what's happening around the reward event or normal behavior. Because it's not simply that we move, it's that there's a strong contrast between what was happening before the reward event occurs and the reward event itself. So if I'm standing still, and suddenly I jump and go, and we do something, that's highly reinforcing to a dog. There's a big contrast between normal behavior and what happens during the reward. The more than my normal behavior and my reward start to look alike, the less difference between the two, the less motivating that is to the dog. So we try to make our training very much full of peaks and valleys, really high active reward events followed by calm, high active reward events, and those contrasts are highly motivating. We're gonna talk about the difference between hunger drive and movement-based prey sequences. Uh, so one of the things about hunger drive, so if we're training with food, lots of people will use just the food to motivate the dog. You get your dog hungry, your dog wants food, he does something, I hand him a piece of food, great, it works. But he's being completely motivated by his hunger drive at that point. It's simply how hungry he is. Where, and hunger drive does not intensify through rehearsal. Your dog can be hungry, and when he eats, it satiates that, and that drive drops. So the more you train that way, actually the less motivated the dog becomes for the food. Whereas prey or movement-based reward systems with food or toys intensify through rehearsal. So if your dog chases a ball as a young dog, the more you throw the ball for your dog and the more they rehearse that, the more intense they get about it. So rehearsal intensifies prey-based or chasing behaviors. So our rewards are going to be predicated on moving that way, whether we're using food or a toy, because it's much more motivating. We're going to talk about variable duration of the reward event and its effect on what we call post-reinforcement pause or inattention. Lots of people, when they reward their dog in training, 
the reward is always uh, of a fixed length. My dog sits, I give him a piece of food. Right? So that reward is a single piece of food. It lasted X seconds, a very short period of time. If I'm predictable in how I do that, my reward always lasts a certain amount of time, then my dog starts to check out right after the reward for a brief period, knowing that there's not another reward coming for X seconds again. And so what that dog does, they call that post-reinforcement pause, where your dog says, okay, I've got my reward, now he checks out for a few seconds, and then he checks back in, because he knows that he's not getting another reward. So we vary the duration of our reward event. So sometimes it's one piece of food, sometimes it's you chase three pieces of food for 10 seconds, sometimes I play tug with you for 30 seconds, sometimes I play tug with you for five seconds. I vary that duration. So the dog never knows how long the reward is going to go on, the reward event is going to go on, and so they don't check out after each reward because they expect it to kind of keep going. That variability keeps them engaged and you don't have those little moments of checking out. Uh, we're going to talk about our auditory stimulator. Uh, we talk about this in our puppy bite work video, but we also do it in our obedience. So when we're teasing a dog with toy or food, we make little noises and we condition the dog that these noises are stimulating and exciting. So if my dog's chasing a piece of food that's in my hand, I go and I make little noises as the dog chases it, whatever you want, you can make any kind of noise you like, but that auditory noise becomes classically conditioned to stimulate the dog and get them excited. So later on, we can use that to stimulate our dog during the reward event and bring up their overall motivation and excitement for that activity. We're gonna talk about uh, a dog's brain is wired in such a way that the acquisition of rewards is more in reinforcing than having them. So dogs are wired to like chasing and searching behavior. It's biological. So for instance, if uh, there's a cane in the, in the wild, uh, they're hunting for something. And most hunting uh, attempts are unsuccessful. You everyone watch the nature documentaries, right? 80% of the time, the dog or the animal does not get what they're going after. And what behavior would you continue to do if you were 80% unsuccessful? Very few of them. And so, biology has conspired to keep them doing it by making it feel good. So chasing and searching activates a part of the dog's brain that feels good. And the more they rehearse it, the more they like it. So our rewards should include searching and chasing. It's less about the actual getting the piece of food and more about acquiring the piece of food. And it's much more motivating to, uh, to the dog to be in the acquisition phase. So how do we incorporate that into our reward event? Um, and then we're gonna talk about tugging, chasing, and eating, which are the basic three pieces of our interactive puzzle. So tugging is obviously directly between the handler and the dog, and we're tugging, chasing, the dog, the dog can chase me, can chase what's in my hand, or can chase something that I throw, and then eating, of course, right? So we're using the dog's hunger drive to motivate them for food, and then how we deliver the food uh, predicts how valuable that reward event is gonna be.